So hopefully you can find 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. And why don't we do as our custom, and like it did in the days of Ezra, and Nehemiah will stand and read the Word of God. <laughs> so beginning in verse 8. But we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So let's pray. Lord, we, we know that whether we speak one verse or 50 verses during a message, that you have something to say. And we don't have a lot of verses here, but they're packed with a deep, deep and rich meaning. I pray, as Laurel prayed, that uh, your spirit would help me proclaim truth the way it was intended. And the law is a massive subject. And I, there's so many questions that I know for myself that I have about regarding the law that are maybe difficult to answer, and maybe for the congregation as well. But I pray, Lord, that we get the nuts and bolts of what you're trying to say here and the gist of the law. And again, we want to know this so that we don't misapply it in our own Christian circles and uh, we can understand how to speak to those who believe it's necessary for today. So we just want to uh, ask for your clarity, your spirit's guidance in our time. Amen. Well, welcome back to our letter after a two-week break. Uh, let me dive in by reminding you of where we left off from last time. Uh, the last time we got together, we looked at really two issues in the letter. The first, we discussed why Timothy had been stationed by Paul in Ephesus, and the answer was, of course, in verse 3. He was stationed there to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculations, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So we spoke about, again, Paul's stationing of Timothy there to deal with the false teachers, which then forced us to look at a second issue within the sermon, and that was to look at the nature of their heresy. And we discussed how, because it's really difficult to get the specifics of the heresy, the best thing to do was to look at the principles of the heresy and we discussed those as a church together, and um, if you missed that, it's on the, the website. You can listen to that sermon. But what was the key for me in that sermon was that the principles that were present in the heresy back then, we can actually see today in the false teachers who, who have a message to try to proclaim here and now. But one of the key aspects of the false teachers was their emphasis on the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament Law. And we get that just from the letter that these false teachers are promoting that observance to their understanding of the law was a means of justification. In other words, by following the law the way they interpreted it, you would have gained right standing with God. Now this struck at the very heart of the gospel message that Paul had been commissioned to preach. And so he wanted to make this very clear to Timothy to get the message out to the, the church in Ephesus that this was not the case. And so he said in verse 7, or starting in verse 6, actually, we'll start there. He says, For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, 
and watch this, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they did not understand either what they were saying or the matters about which they made confident assertions. Now, that phrase, wanted, did not understand either what they were saying or matters about which they made confident assertions, is really important for me, and it will be for you as well. And I'm sure some of you have already experienced this in your Christian walks. Um, you've probably met people today who might come from Christian backgrounds that try to make you have a blend of Christianity and Judaism. Um, let me share two stories that I have personally have, or three stories actually, of things that I'm aware of in my own life. Uh, Dan and I were at IKEA one time studying uh, scriptures, um, keeping each other accountable in ministry, and a woman came up to us with her child and started to tell us about. Um, Actually, you know, she was excited that we're Christians and whatnot. And then she started to talk about the law, and she was uh, she was making it pretty well known that, from her perspective, there were if in order for us to be right with God, there were certain Old Testament practices that we needed to be observing as part of our Christian walk. I remember another friend of mine uh, was dealing with another Christian friend in the church, and the person came up to him and said, "So, like, you know, what's new in your faith and whatnot?" He goes, "Well, I've learned to eat biblically." And the guy goes, what do you mean I've learned to eat biblically? Well, he goes, well, I've just recently just, like, got rid of pork and shellfish. Okay? Right? So, in other words, like, eating biblically. In other words, if you don't do that, you're not eating biblically, so you're in danger there with your relationship with the Lord, you know? But my favorite just happened to me back in October while I was at Callaway Park with the boys. I'm on a... I'm on that, you know, that yacht that goes back and forth like this. For some reason, that one makes me sick, but I can do the roller coaster. I don't know what it is. But I'm on that yacht, and I get a text message, and I think, oh, okay, well, this is going to, I'll just quickly look at it because the yacht's pretty slow. <laughs> Keep me from getting sick. And so I read it, and this is what I got, in the, this is what I got as a text message. You might not be able to read this well, um, and the picture's upside down because the text message came in vertically and not horizontally. But if you can't read this, I'll read it out loud to you. This is what it says. I saw something in the paper that I'm going to send you. Call me if you want to talk about it. Thanks. It's a picture of a man dressed up in women's clothing. And the, it was a play that was held here at the RPAC Center. So we read from the town, right? So you know that the RPAC Center holds theater productions. Well, you know that because at services, we often come here and there's like... <laughs> pillars and all sorts of beds around me and different things and um, funny stuff. So he's, this, this, this is the Rocky Mountain Horror Show and it was held here at the RPAC Center. And this is a picture of this guy asking this woman to join the, like the play, just as a pulling out of the crowd to join the play. And I guess part of the scene is she's, they're sacrificing a virgin or something like that. Okay? So they pull that out and yeah, we of course as believers we wouldn't like, you know, be approval, approval of that kind of stuff, but regardless, this is what he says. He says, this happens at the place where you hold church, right? That building looks more like a place of defilement than a set-apart place. It sounds judgmental. It only comes from a place of repulsion to the abominable act. To them, it's not a game. It's more than entertainment. Now, here's the point. I agree in the repulsiveness of the content of the play. But he's saying this, this is a place of defilement, not a place of, um, not a set-apart place. In other words, he's praying for our discernment because he thinks we're in the wrong for being here. He, and here's what you don't know about the guy. This guy 
um, is uh, now adopted Judaism as part of his Christianity. So he celebrates new moon festivals when they come in Okotoks. He, um, he, uh, when I even asked him like what church he was going to, he goes, yeah, I just had a great time like at Shabbat, which is the Sabbath, right on Saturday. So he's even changed it to his day of worship and things like that. So he, he's concerned for us that we're being def- probably defiled in this building, which I find ironic um, anyway. But he comes from a Judaistic blend with this in Christianity. So he thinks I'm in danger and he wouldn't even attend here because of that. There's a, I didn't even respond. Uh, I wanted to, but to be honest with you, that's a game I'm not, uh, not going to do over text message. You want to have coffee? We'll do it, but I'm not going to play that game. Anyhow, it's relevant, church. It's relevant. You can eat biblically. You can uh, work, do Shabbat. You can avoid this place of defilement and so on and so forth. Okay? So the situation in Ephesus is very applicable. That's all I'm saying. And it's important we get a handle on the right use of the law and the purpose and how it relates to us. And again, it's a massive topic. And I don't profess to be an expert, but I, I'll try to do the best to speak about what Paul brings up in these passages. Just so you know, if I can't answer all your questions in dialogue, I will do the work and uh, come back to you if I, if I don't know something. But let's read verse 8 together. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The reason Paul makes the claim, of course, that the Mosaic law is good was because he was speaking in response to what he said in verse 7 about the false teachers in terms of their use of it. Even though they wanted to be teachers of it and were misusing it, Paul made it clear again that actually it wasn't bad just because they were misusing it. The law still had a place in Christianity as followers of Jesus. So he wasn't the kind of man, Paul, who was going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because the false teachers are misusing the law and completely misunderstood God's purpose in establishing it, it didn't make the law bad. It was still good. It was still a reflection of God's holy character, and it had a place and a role to play in God's saving purposes. But the key was, for Paul, it had to be used lawfully. For it to be in God's saving purposes, it had to be used lawfully as opposed to unlawfully. So what does that mean? Well, verse 9 and 10 gives us a clue. Let's read it. He says, Realizing that the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Notice the key observation there. The law is intended not for the righteous person, but for the unrighteous person. The lawless, the rebellious, and so on. In other words, it was an, it's, the law is not intended for those who are already followers of Jesus Christ, who have been justified by their faith in Him, but for those who aren't. Now what's interesting is even though Paul tells us who the law was for, he actually doesn't spell out in detail how and why it was for them. And for that, we have to go outside of Timothy to other passages, which we'll do in a couple minutes. But before we do, I just want to take a quick look at the list that's mentioned here by Paul. Because at first glance, you might think, well, it's kind of a bit random. But when you look a bit more closely, you'll realize it's actually a summary of the Ten Commandments. 
It's a summary of the Ten Commandments. The first three pairs are offenses against God. The lawless, the rebellious, the ungodly, the sinners, the unholy, profane. So they correspond to the first four commandments. The second group of commandments, um, strike or kill your father and mother, which is commandment five, murder, commandment six, immoral homosexuality, number seven, kidnappers, number eight, and liars, perjurers, number nine. Of course, this all has to do with your relationship to one another. Okay, so in the first three, for the first list of offenses are against God and represent the first four commandments. The second list of offenses correspond to the last half of the Ten Commandments and have to do with the relationship towards others. Now we'll go back to this list here for a second. I never initially saw this in my study, but it was suggested by more than one commentary, and I think it has some validity, so I'll mention it to you, about how they see the first pairing of these uh, rebellious acts, like these sort of sinful behaviors, actually have like a, um, they're not random by Paul, there's a point to him. And basically that the pairings are intentional in that the first word reflects the inner attitude or the heart of the person, and the second is actually more the rebel, is more the outward action that comes from the heart. Okay? So I'll, um, I'll, this is what it would look like then. So, so to be lawless, means that inward in your heart, you're, you're rebellious, you're, um, you have no care for the law, you're sort of anti-law. The result then is that you become rebellious. Now the Greek word is insubordinate or not submissive. So because of your inward attitude towards God and His, and his law and so on, you become outwardly insubordinate and, submissive, and not submissive. Likewise, if you're ungodly, that means that you, you're one that's not, you know, that means not worship. It, literally, it means not worship. So you have no regard for worshiping of God or His ways or His standards for life. The result is that you'll be deviant then in the way you behave. You'll become a sinner and you'll deviate from behavior that God would desire. If you're unholy, you're indifferent internally to what is sacred. The result is that you'll be profane on the outside you'll, or you'll be irreverent as certain translations will say. So you'll have no reverence for, for God and the sacred and so you'll trample on what is sacred and you'll discord and disdain those things. So, again, I never made those distinctions, but these were the commentaries saying, I'll let you decide if you think that's a valid understanding. But regardless, regardless, we know that in this list, to, to not work, you know, the first four commandments are at stake in these uh, first pairings. Looking at the second list, um, again, the... the uh, the law here is pretty straightforward. It says here, those who kill their mothers and fathers. Um, some translations, or um, in Exodus 21, later on, Paul talks about even if you strike your mother and father, you will receive a death penalty. So some people actually um, believe that to kill your honor, or to kill your mother and father, which is what Paul says here in Timothy, is actually more like to strike them. But again, regardless, it's irrelevant because they both would receive the death penalty. Um, murder is self-explanatory. Immoral and homosexuality is encompassed under adultery. It's expanded beyond that because what God's driving at in Commandment 7 is marital faithfulness in the marital, in the marital bed. A husband, one husband, one wife, married, and fidelity. 
So immorality is any uh, aberration of that, whether it be prostitution or incest or whatever it may be. And homosexuality, of course, is self-explanatory. It's not male or female, it's uh, male and male or female and female. So again, uh, you can see the, the seventh commandment encompassed in Paul's list. Kidnappers, of course, relates to do not steal. Again, in the Roman, Greco-Roman culture, uh, slaves are common. I mean, I, I was one, one person taught me this, and I think they're probably right. He says, the majority of the New Testament church is probably made up of slaves. Right? And so, uh, you know, um, slavery is basically mentioned with masters and slave relationships all throughout the Bible. They're very common in the church. And so, uh, kidnapping, of course, would be common in that culture. And liars and perjurers are self-explanatory in Commandment 9. What I like here is that Paul finishes the list by saying, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Now, why I say that's interesting to me is I wonder if he has the 10th commandment, do not covet in mind, because he never actually gets to that one in his list. But, you know, the 10 commandments, of course, in the, in the Deuteronomy in places are expanded. So he makes the commandment and he expands on what those look like. So he's just giving a quick list of the Ten Commandments, but of course, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching was anything that would fall out of that as well. Anything in the, in the moral side of the law. So like we said before, it was clear who the law was intended for. It was the people that are profane, the people that are rebellious, the people who are sinners, the people that don't honor their father and mother, the people that like, you know, steal, the people who lie, it's for those people. It's for them. But we still don't know why and how it was for them. And that's what we're going to get to now. So why the law? Why is the law good and why is it for the unrighteous person? First of all, the law is there to reveal sinfulness. The law's purpose was to reveal sin. Romans 3.20 by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, which the false teachers didn't believe. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The knowledge of sin. Paul alludes to this in Romans 7, 7. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting unless the law said, do not covet. Now we know this to be true, church, don't you? I mean, we, in practical experience... Watch this. If your child, let's just take anybody here, like whether it's, you know, Mike or, or like Aaliyah or whoever, like if, if you, if they go about 4.30 to 5 o'clock every day to the candy drawer in your pantry and eat copious amounts of candy before dinner, there's no morality issue in that. There's no moral issue in that. If I want candy, I'm going to go get it. But as soon as mom and dad say, by the way, you know, Mike or Aaliyah, I don't want you to do that anymore because I've prepared a dinner for you and I want you to be able to eat your whole dinner because it's more healthy for you. Now all of a sudden, you've been aware of a law by mom and dad. So now the next day when you go to get candy, if you grab it, the, sin, the, the law makes it evident in your mind that you've sinned against, against your parents. Prior to the commandment, you didn't know that there was a sin issue there, did you? Because it was just, I'm just going to go with candy. There's no moral issue in getting candy. It's a source of substance. But as soon as mom and dad say you can't do it, now it's a moral issue. And this is what's happened with the, with the law. 
the law, when God states the law and puts the law there, now you know when you, when, you, when you go to do something, if you break it, it gives you the knowledge of sin. It reveals that you have sinfulness in your life that has to be dealt with. The law then, in those cases, can only condemn somebody and produce guilt. In a case like that, it only condemns and produces guilt. And it's this violation of God's law that separates us from a relationship with Him. And God makes it clear through the Scripture, it doesn't matter whether it's only one, or it's 101, you're in the same boat. You're in the same boat. There's condemnation and a separation between you and God because of it. Galatians 3.10 makes this clear. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under His curse. For the Scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in the book of the law. So whether you have 101 commands and you, and you get like 98 right or, 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 90, or you know, even like 99 wrong, it's irrelevant. If you just break one command, it means that you're under the curse. You're condemned and you're guilty before God. I, uh, this is really popular in our culture, this idea of I'm a good person and they want to have a spiritual... Uh, report card for why they should be accepted before God. You, you know lots of, you've probably had many conversations, well this person such, I'm a good person so God will accept me. What's interesting was, um, based on Galatians 3.10, is Callie gave me this illustration years ago from a course she took, I thought it was brilliant. Let's say you got a speeding ticket. You got a speeding ticket, and you went down to the courthouse here, and uh, you were going to fight it. So you go down there and fight it, and you stand before the judge, and he says, what's your plea? Why do you want to be relieved of the, of the ticket? And you said this, well, you didn't see this before, but when I was coming in through the door, I opened the door for the peace officer that actually gave me the ticket. And before that, I actually was at Tim Hortons and I bought uh, the person behind me breakfast. And uh, yesterday I gave 50 bucks to a charitable organization, the food bank in Okotoks. And I phoned my sister, who's like going through some struggles, and I spent an hour on the phone with her to help her with her, her pain of her emotional care and all this stuff, and, uh, and I helped her get through a hard time. And uh, the judge says, uh, you want me to relieve you the ticket because of those things? And you say, absolutely, I'm, I'm a good person. The judge would laugh you out of court. He'd say, I don't care about those things. We're here to deal with the speeding ticket. Pay your 150 or 300 bucks, whatever it may be. You see the, you see the, the ludicrousness of the, of the spiritual report card before God? The, even in secular courts, we'd get laughed out of secular courts with a crooked judge over trying to plea our morality to get off of a speeding ticket. And so when God says He gives the law, He gives the moral law, and then we go and disobey it, whether it's one command or 150 commands, we're in the same boat. We're in the same boat. Which leads to the second purpose of the law. So the, the, law, the law reveals you're sinful. That's what it does. It reveals it. Because every time you break it, you get, your conscience goes off and goes, here I go again, I did it again. Okay? Here's the second purpose of the law. You don't stay under the curse. God doesn't want you to stay there, cursed and condemned. He says this. The second purpose is to lead us to Christ. The purpose of the law is to condemn you, but then lead you to Christ. Galatians 3, 24, 25. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
So I know in, uh, in, the, in this room, I know Janice has done some tutoring, and I know Stephanie's currently doing some tutoring. I'm guessing maybe, Laurel, you have as well. And you know what the expectation of a tutor is. When, you t when people bring you their children to, 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 to learn, it's usually because they're sort of struggling in this particular area of academics, whatever. And your job is to teach them what you know so that, <laughs> so that they can sort of catch up and be able to like, succeed in the areas they're struggling in. Well, the law teaches us that because we're condemned, the only way out is that we would need someone to save us from that condemnation. And that Savior, that God's provision of a Savior is found in Jesus Christ. And this is why this is so beautiful. Because here he says, you're cursed even if you break one of the commands. But listen to the next verse after this in Galatians. He says, but Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And then one of the greatest verses in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who, made, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So as we can see, the law was not the gospel. The law is not gospel. Justification comes through faith in Jesus Christ. To be right standing with God comes through faith alone, apart from, from like, you know, your, your, your track record of morality. However, the law is not in opposition to the gospel either. I you know I've introduced my boys to tag team wrestling uh, lately, and we uh, pair up and we have a little bit of a go at it in the basement. Well, I look at the law and the gospel as being tag team partners. The law basically takes the guy into the ring and beats the crap out of him and leaves him lying on the ground. And then you go back and tag your partner, which is the gospel, he comes in and he, he picks you off the mat and takes you out of the ring and bandages you up. Okay? So the law condemns and the gospel justifies. The law reveals you're sick, but the gospel's the cure. So they're not in opposition to one another, they work together. The problem with the false teachers church is that they're misusing the law. They're making it a means of justification and not condemnation. And their tragic misuse has had tragic results. They're making the church now their mission field and not the outside world. Right? Because they're going amongst the believers saying, I know like Paul taught you some things about three, four years ago, but did you, do you know that uh, he's wrong? You get right through observing my, uh, through the way I understand these genealogies and the myths and the Old Testament, how they all work together. Their, more em their, their emphasis now is the inside the church and not outside to the lost people. In this church that had been a beacon of hope in Ephesus, who started so well, who had a massive revival in the city, and again, you can read about it in Acts, had lost their influence and purpose. And one of the key themes in 1 Timothy is this idea of his concern for the salvation for the lost. Listen, I've, you know, in chapter 1-1, remember we talked about in the pastoral epistles, the only place that God has mentioned the Savior in the whole New Testament, in Paul's letters, is the pastoral epistles. First and 2 Timothy and Titus, God is called Savior there. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, six times he's mentioned that God has come to save all men. In chapter 4, verse 10, his concern for the, is for the salvation for the people outside and inside the church. 
He says this, This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who are believers. The church, of course, in terms of their role, was massive. He says in chapter 3, verse 15, that to, to Timothy, don't forget that the church is the pillar and the support of truth. The church in Ephesus, under the direction of the false teachers, was no longer in the business of saving people. <laughs> you see why Paul is so concerned now. He wants Timothy to put a stop to the false teachers and their misuse of the law and start using it the way God intended to bring people to, into right relationship with God. Teaching them that through the law, there's a penalty to be paid before, the, before him. That they were condemned and guilty. But the law was still good. Because through that teaching that they were guilty, God had provided a cure in the Savior, Jesus Christ. And by faith, placing their faith for what He had done for them on the cross, that they could be made right before God. And this is why in verse 11, Paul says this, you know, he goes, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. Actually, let me take a running start at it. Because it makes sense. Listen to this now. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is I've been entrusted. Again, gospel and law are not in opposition to one another. This is always part of God's plan for which, for which Paul was commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. The law was there to teach people that they weren't right with God and that was all within God's purposes. This blessed God had made this the way it was going to be so that he could then be their savior. Paul was entrusted with this message and you know what church? So are we. So are we. If you want to use the law correctly in its use, you just use it to point out that people morally have failed before the Lord. You use it in that way to produce guilt. And you must do it with gentleness and reverence. <laughs> like, that's another sermon. Uh, there's a lot, we could have lots of discussion on that. There's a way to use the law in spiritual conversations with your non-believing friends and family. But the purpose is to produce guilt so that we turn them to the cure, which is Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the law. And that's what it's to be intended for. And the stories that I gave you at the beginning, all three examples, they're more worried about what we're doing as Christians inside the church building than they are about what, using the law for its intended purpose, which is to bring people to the knowledge of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. This might be my shortest sermon in history, but you know what? It's, it's, it's plenty. Plenty to think about. I'll give you two lessons. Sorry, my slides are in not the order I intended. <laughs> okay, lesson one. The law is good when? Number one, we use it with non-believers to reveal their sin and produce guilt. That's when it's good. When we use it the way God intended. To help people see their sinfulness. And to give them the knowledge of sin. Then, the law is good when we, when we use it as a tutor to lead them to Jesus Christ. 
That's how the law is to be used. A true gospel teacher and a true gospel evangelist and a true gospel preacher will teach the law as a, not as a means of attaining salvation, but as a means of bringing people to throw themselves at the mercy of Jesus Christ. And remember, it doesn't matter whether you sin once or sin a million times. Spiritual report cards don't work with God, just like the judge with your speeding ticket will laugh you out of court. But at the same time, the law is not in opposition to the gospel. It works alongside the gospel if used properly. Which leads me to my final lesson. The law is good, but it's not good news. There's still a distinction, right? The law is not the means of justification. The good news of Jesus Christ on the cross, death for you is. But again, it's not an opposition. So the law does nothing but condemn, but it never produces spiritual life. Galatians 2.21 If righteousness came through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Plain and simple. Again, the law is good, but it's not the good news. Jesus Christ's death on the cross for you to forgive you of your sin is the good news.